I want to want to talk this morning um, about something that I've been working through the book of Philippians, and uh, I, I ministered on a Wednesday night a couple months ago, and we started in Philippians 1. I want to pick up in Philippians 3 this morning, but just take the hand of the person next to you this morning. You don't know who that person, what they might be dealing with in their life right now. Um, there, I, I venture to say that there's people that have walked through these double doors this morning in the back and come in here, and they are at a desperate need and a desperate place in their life. So this morning, we're going to pray for the Spirit of God to just fill this room, fill our hearts. I want you to open yourself up by the time we get done with this, okay? Heavenly Father, we come to you right now as your children that are bought by the blood of Christ this morning. And God, I call upon you, Holy Spirit, to make real your presence in every person's heart. Make real the presence of Christ in this room, God. I just pray for these people that have come into this room this morning, God, and some of them are at desperate places in their life. God, they are in, in, in circumstances that they never thought that they would be in. We don't know the full story of why someone might be here this morning, but God, I pray that the hand that is next to them and holding their hand, God, would be a messenger of hope, God, that would be a messenger of encouragement, and God, that you would just use the body this morning to minister to the body. Lord, I beg of you, Holy Spirit, to use me this morning to bring encouragement and to bring um, uh, hope to someone that might be in this place. God, help me to expound your word this morning, God. And Lord, as we sang, I'm excited that this was even in the lineup, God, about the wind and the sails, God. Use me as the wind and the sail this morning, God. Fill me up this morning, God, and blow me how you want to uh, move this morning, God. Use my tongue. And use it, God, to, to, as, as a, a writer would use a pen, God. I just pray that you would minister to hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to read 10 verses of Scripture this morning out of Philippians chapter 3. I want to talk to you this morning about something called merit badge faith. Merit badge faith. Brother Shane, were you able to get the PowerPoint up and going this morning? This is like last-minute PowerPoint here. Uh, wasn't able to get it to him until fairly early this morning. I would say that this young man here has uh, studied and really worked on some badges. What do you think? Um, he's a Boy Scout. Read a little bit about him. He earned all 131 badges that the Boy Scouts uh, puts out there. I can't remember. I think he's from in California somewhere, and I, I forgot his name. But this morning, I want to talk about merit badge faith. Um, if you're in Philippians chapter 3, say amen. amen. All right. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew, in reg- a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness um, of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, uh, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. I really enjoy the book of Philippians There are so many, I said this last time, there are so many quotable notables in the book of Philippians. You can go through Philippians and you'll see the the famous scripture where Paul writes, my dear brothers, I thank God for you every time that I come to you. You you get on in Philippians chapter 3 and you read about, I've not attained all of this, I press on. And you read about, um, I believe it's in Philippians where it says, set your mind on things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are of good report. There's so many things that instruct us in the book of Philippians. Um, But there's a word in the opening of this text this morning, in the verses that we see, um, and I wonder if you caught it. It's rejoice. Now you might think that the Apostle Paul it would be easy for him to rejoice. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he's so close to God that he sees floating pots of manna and he has dinner with angels every night, right? I mean, that's kind of what we think about. We romanticize um, things whenever we read. But the Apostle Paul, um, you might not realize this, but he's anywhere but on top of the world right now whenever he's pinning this letter to the Philippians. The Apostle Paul is shut up in a Roman prison whenever he writes this. He is a long ways from living on top of the world. Um, He's living in a pit, if you just want me to be honest with you. Um, But in his pit, the Apostle Paul finds a way to rejoice all over the place. How does he do that? Because by the time that you read through all of Philippians, you're going to see the Apostle Paul either write about, he's going to say, have joy, it is my joy, or he's going to tell the reader to rejoice 16 times. How can a man that's sitting in a prison being tortured write about rejoice and joy? Up to this point, if you were to read from Philippians 1 to Philippians 3, he's already going to have mentioned that five times already. But if you read through here, you can learn some things about joy. Joy, number one, joy is not, you remember the the algebra uh, equation or, or, or the sign that is not equal to? Joy is not equal to happiness. Happiness is a feeling or an emotion. I can walk into a room, I'll just use the men's encounter as an example, 
Laying there at night, Kara and I, we leave our bedroom at 67 degrees. The men's encounter bedroom was roughly 75. It's a different kind of feeling. Okay? I don't dwell well in places where bacteria can grow. Joy is not a feeling. Happiness is a feeling. Have you ever been involved in something that you get scared all of a sudden and you have that scared feeling just out of nowhere? That's not joy. Joy doesn't work that way. Joy is, let let me move on. Joy is not positive thinking either. The fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is supernatural. It's a wellness that transcends our physical uh, state of being. It's, it's, It's a wellness that transcends our health. It eclipses the emotions that we dwell in right now. Joy is a deep inner conviction that although things are not right, everything's going to be all right. Have you ever been there? The world's upside down in your, in your uh, arena, but you know, I know things are going to be all right. That's joy. Joy most typically originates in the heart of people who have endured suffering and sadness. Joy is an action. I need to get on with my message. It's why Paul is able to rejoice in this prison because of joy. Joy, um, we don't rejoice because we have joy. We rejoice because we seek joy. And now we need to move on and address these people that Paul is writing about which are the Judaizers, or Juda- I don't know the right way to say, I'm going to say Judaizers, but the people who put requirements on the Christians. And I find it interesting that Paul broke into some good old-fashioned apostolic name-calling here. Um, it's almost like a, a political uh, election here, you know? I mean, he, he says, watch out for those dogs, Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Watch out for those dogs. Where have you heard that type of terminology before? Think about it. See, there are layers and layers of irony in what Paul writes here, but we're going to work on just dogs. Watch out for those dogs. That is something that you've seen somewhere else in Scripture. It just may not come to mind right now. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is writing about, he says, um, Judge not lest ye be judged. Let me take a sidebar here. Did you know that everybody thinks that John 3.16 is the most noted and quoted Scripture in the world? But you start dealing with people that um, do not appreciate your worldview? And they're going to come and say, well, even the Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. That's the one that they really know to throw up in your face. It's not right for you to judge me. And then here's what I like saying. I say, well, I understand that Matthew 7.1 says that. But if you'd read down just about four or five verses later, Jesus says this. Jesus says, I want you to look at what Jesus says here. He says, do not give to the dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearl to the swine. And I'll look at him and I'll say, 
Isn't that a judgment call? Don't judge me, but yet Jesus makes a judgment call over here and says, don't cast your pearl before the swine. So if you ever get engaged in a debate there, you can use that. Maybe it's going to help you, maybe it won't. But Jesus is the one that used the terminology dogs in Scripture. That's in Matthew 7. This is a Jewish metaphor that was talking about those that are totally unreceptive to the message, totally unreceptive to what God has provided for them. There's another place that Jesus talks about it. If you want to, you can mark this down, Mark chapter 7. So we was just in Matthew chapter 7. Now you can come over to Mark chapter 7 and verse 24 through 30. And Jesus, I won't read it all, but Jesus is traveling into the vicinity of um, uh, Syria, Phoenicia, Syrophoenicia. And or he's in the vicinity of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And um, you, you might want to make a note of this. This is the only time that Jesus actually travels outside of a Jewish um, territory. But while he's there... He's trying to keep under the radar, and he goes into the home of this lady, and he even, he even, and Scripture even talks about how he doesn't want his presence to be known, and he's trying to remain under the, the radar, but you know, that's just impossible. You can't keep Jesus under a bushel. I've told you before that if you get the presence of Christ into a place, the desert will become an Eden because people will flood out to the desert to get to the presence of Christ. And Jesus, he goes into this lady's house, this Syro, or, and he's approached by a, a non-Jewish woman. They call, the scripture calls her a Syrophoenician woman. And she, becomes, she comes to him begging because she has a little girl at home that's demon-possessed. You remember this story so far? So she's demon-possessed. And, you know, Jesus doesn't come to her with really a soft word. I want you to, I, I do want to read this part here. In Mark chapter 7 here, in verse 27, this is what Jesus said. He says, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. So Jesus is looking at her and says, you're not of the fold. You're, you're not Jewish. You're a dog. And she says, Lord, even though, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your house or left your daughter. So this was a Jewish metaphor. And Jesus calls this Gentile woman a dog. Now, what's that got to do with the apostle Paul? Because he says, watch out for those dogs. The Pharisees or the Jewish Christians that were trying to impose these rules upon the new believers were very familiar with what it meant for a Jew to call a Gentile a dog. And whenever Paul takes that term and he turns it around and he shoots it right back at them and says, you know what, you're the dog. You're the dog. Can you imagine going to a hate group here these days? <laughs> and turning around and calling them what they're calling you? I mean, it's just it's crazy. That's what the Apostle Paul does. Though. So can you imagine how biting and how stinging uh, this comment is that Paul uses when he calls the Jews the dogs? So just so we're clear, the Judaizers that Paul's talking about here, the Jewish Christians who believe that in order to become a follower of Jesus, 
you had to um, keep strict adherence to the law, uh, particularly the Mosaic law, in particular the Mosaic law circumcision. But Paul was not having any of it. He says, no, this isn't right. And in fact, Pastor Lynn, uh, there, there's a backstory to this. And Pastor Lynn just about got in my Kool-Aid last week while he was preaching because he goes to Acts chapter 15 and 16 and starts talking about it. Well, that's where you can find the backstory to this because you had Jewish Christians trying to make new Gentile Christians follow the Jewish law. But there was a whole conference, a council, a Jerusalem council that was held in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, where they go before the apostles and, and Peter and Paul and they're all talking about how these are not Peter, but Paul goes in, he and I believe it was Barnabas at the time are talking about how these uh, uh, Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. So that's the backstory. And the, the highly contested verdict out of this whole council is that you do not have to experience circumcision to become part of the Christian society. So, you can put this, this first slide up, uh, gentlemen. The first thing I want you to know is, no, well, the next one. He's a good-looking man, but let's move on. Um, the Christian faith is not an outside-in proposition. It's an inside-out. So what, what Paul was saying is that you don't have to go and you don't have to do additional requirements. You don't, you don't have to act Jewish. You don't, you don't have to eat what they eat. Uh, now, there were some restrictions that they said about blood and things like that. But the Christian faith was not an outside-in deal. There are no ornamentations that you have to put on further. You don't have to pile your hair up. You don't have to wear long sleeves. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Make an ugly woman? Is that what you said? Oh, don't marry an ugly woman. Okay. That too, brother. <laughs> Salvation is by faith or by grace through faith. And Paul said no one, Paul said it like that. He said so no one could boast. But you know what? Of all people, Paul could boast the most. Because he goes on here. He said he, he could have been the chief boaster. So have any of y'all ever been involved in hiring people and they give you a resume and the resume's like 15 pages long? So that's what Paul does here. Paul says, oh, if you want to talk about people that can boast, today he pulls out his religious resume. And he, he gives them a rundown of his resume. But the, the really cool thing is, is after he goes through all these criteria on his resume, Later on, he goes and he runs it through the shredder. Paul passes the test. Paul gets an A+. But after Paul has spent all this time, like that young man doing these merit badges, after Paul has spent all the time amassing all these things for the Lord, he looks at it, or what he thinks he's amassing for the Lord, keeping the law and doing all of that, he realizes it's vain, it's hollow, there's an empty, empty um, road there. there, there's not a lot going on. So he passes the test, and then he, he, he runs everything that he's done, he says, I consider it garbage. He runs it through the shredder here, and then he glories in that. And I'm thinking, wow, just wow. See, the gospel 
is Jesus plus absolutely, utterly, and completely nothing else. Let me say that again. The gospel is Jesus plus absolutely, utterly, and completely nothing else. There's nothing that you can do to make Jesus love you more than what he does right now. Do you realize that on your worst day, he loves you more than you do on your best day? He's crazy about you. I cannot imagine that my children would ever do anything to me that would make me not love them. You know what? We, we tell Tucker, oh, Tucker and White, good grief. We tell them, like Wednesday night coming to church, the boys wear their, their uh, Royal Ranger things. Kara looks at him. I look at him before he goes to school. He wore his Royal Ranger t-shirt to school. Tucker, do not play in the dirt today. Okay. And whenever we picked him up, dirt, he was wearing a dirt apron is what he was doing. You know what? Even though he did that, I am crazy about that kid. And Jesus says, you being evil know how to give good gifts and how to love your children. How much more does the Father love you? So the gospel, the eccentric, scandalous grace that we were talking about earlier, is Jesus plus absolutely, utterly, and completely nothing else. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you're Greek. Jesus came, and with the cross, he leveled the playing field. All men stand before Jesus the same. No one has a pre-advantage uh, over the other. Do you understand that? Jesus leveled the playing field. He took the mountain of hurdles and he removed the mountain. You have free and open access here. And circumcision would have been the one thing that meant the most to Paul. It meant everything to him. But now it means less than nothing. And I think it's interesting, and I'll get to this here in just a minute, but I think it's interesting how Paul takes the equation, turns around, he says, uh, Mutilation of the flesh is nothing. We are the circumcision now. It's us who live and serve God by the Spirit. We're the true circumcision. So, the gospel, you can put this next way, the gospel of Jesus is simultaneously the most exclusive and the most inclusive offer in the universe. How's that possible? Well, it's totally exclusive in the fact that... Um, Human beings can be saved. Um, only, there, there's only one way. Here, I'll get this right in a second. It's exclusive because there's only one way that you can come in. There's only one way that humans can be saved. Um, by grace, through faith, in the atoning work of Christ. What's the old hymn say? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. There's one entrance point. There's one gate. There's one door that you can come in, but yet it's totally inclusive in the fact that anyone can be saved. All of us can be saved. All who will repent of their sin, all who place their trust in Christ, and all who say, I, I, I give you control. I, I want you to be my leader. I want you to uh, lead me. No one is qualified, uh, unqualified, or disqualified um, in fact, because of this awesome grace, and some of your 
movements out there will say prevenient grace, but I don't want to use that terminology necessarily. Because of this grace, we are all pre-qualified to be saved. We don't believe that God only saves some and destines others for hell. That's not something that we hold to here. Every one of us is pre-qualified. The free grace of God freed the humans, the, the, the human uh, race to make a decision to trust in Christ. But there's one great big caveat to the equation. And that is, you must decide on your own. You must make that decision. So, this is why we brag on Jesus alone. This is why we boast in the cross alone. Um, Everything that mattered so much to Paul up to that point doesn't matter anymore. Can you imagine spending your whole life trying to attain the law? What did they say? It was seven, eight hundred points of the law. Your whole life was dedicated to meeting every one of those criteria. And after Paul does that, he says, I'm faultless. He says, now I consider it garbage. The cross of Jesus and the grace of Jesus is the only true freedom. Everything else is just another form of slavery. With Jesus, there's no more trying to measure up because the cross measures down to us. So here's where I want to get to. Do you have a merit badge mentality? Have you got the slide about Roll Rangers? Some of you may be familiar with this. Some of you may not. I told the worship team that we're going to talk about merit badge faith. And Brother Davin said, merit badges. I wonder where that come from. Um, Royal Rangers. <coughs> some of you may know. Some, <coughs> some of you may not know. But on Wednesday nights around here, we have a program for young men called Royal Rangers. It's very similar to what Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts was. Uh, it was founded in 1962 by a gentleman by the name of Johnny Barnes. They called him Mr. Royal Rangers. He was insanely consumed with not only mentoring, but he was looking for a different option to disciple young men. You see, a lot of times in youth ministry, you got your Wednesday night, your youth group, but that's evangelistic base. Okay? Royal Rangers was something that was created to be discipleship based. Not all boys are cut out for Royal Rangers. It's, it's not for every boy that's out there. But Royal Rangers is a, is a program that we do around here on Wednesday nights, and it's a mentoring program, and it's discipleship program. But, and I went through the program when I was a child. I think Brother Paris, who is the commander of one of the, uh, the older boys, or got the older class, he went through it whenever he was a young man. It's a great program. You're going to have to look far and long and, and hard to try to find someone that's a bigger advocate than me for Royal Rangers. And this program, like I said, is very similar to what Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts were, where young men work to attain merit badges. Um, Tucker was reading his book on the way to church, in fact, and he said, I can get a badge for TV. I'm, I'm going to do that one, Dad. But you... So these boys work for these badges to don on their uniforms. And we have some boys like Andrew and Will Pedram. They are insane about getting their merit badges. You take the excitement of those two boys 
and they come in, and I mean, it's almost like being tackled in a football game because they've always, Brother Paul, I got something I want to show you, you know, that they've been working on. And, and uh, Andrew, he just gets so excited while he's quoting his scripture, and, and it's just, I love seeing it in these little boys. But we have these little boys that eat, breathe, sleep, earning merit badges. And they're on a quest to amass as many merit badges as they can, like what that kid was uh, in, the, in the first picture. And the way that you move through the ranks of Royal Rangers is to earn these merit badges. So you got these little five and seven-year-olds, attention, you know what I mean? They're like little soldiers in there saluting the flag and, and everything, and it just it makes my heart swell. But they long to decorate themselves with marks of achievement. And the merit badges, they're markers of status for these boys. I love, I love looking at their little vest and all the stuff that they put on there, and it just makes me happy. But it's a source of pride for these kids. And that's all just fine and good when they're Royal Rangers, but whenever you carry that mentality to your lifestyle in your Christian walk, that's where we're going to run into something. So our text this morning talks about how this group of Jewish Christians or the Judaizers want to require these non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, to own a host of merit badges. Okay? That's where I'm going with this. They, they own a host of merit badges. They keep the Mosaic law before they could become a bona fide Christian. You're just a, if you're following Jesus and you're trusting Jesus, they would say, that's good, but you're not really a Christian until you become circumcised. And Paul recoiled from this idea. He, he just wouldn't have any of it, so he basically pulls out his own collection of bona fides, and he, he, he puts them on display. And then he goes, and he, he, he writes on about how I consider them all rubbish, garbage. And he talks about what the true merit badge is. What happened to Paul? Why would Paul, what would make a man pursue his, what's the right word for me to use here? For him to pursue not just education, but his religious education. I guess we'll say it like that. What would cause a man to pursue his whole life into measuring up to the status of the law? And then after he, you know, he, he had devoted so much to meeting that benchmark. And after he meets that benchmark, then he's able to turn around and just chuck it out the window. What happened? How many of you would be willing to take your degree that you worked on, spent thousands of dollars attaining? Or what about if you took your advanced degree that you spent hundreds of thousands of dollars attaining and just chuck it out the window? I'll tell you what happened for Paul. He met Jesus. Paul met Jesus. He met the one that all of his activity up to that point he was trying to measure up. But you know what? Paul met the one that he had longed for. And he just didn't know that he longed for him. 
You see, once we see, once we see the treasure that Jesus is, the trophies that we attain in a mass pale in comparison and we can regard them as trash. Give me a little latitude when I say this, but we should be too far along in our walk um, to live under an illusion that our activity and our merit badges that we, uh, that we attain can earn us even the slightest favor or modicum of salvation. I want you to be sure and hear what I'm telling you. There is nothing that you can do to make God be any more extravagant and pro-you. I think mentally we all know that. But we don't live it out that way. Because it troubles me that we still try to show off our merit badges and our faith. And we do. You're not a bad person because of it. But it bothers me that we do that on this side of the cross. It's time to take off the merit badges. It's time to take them off because they're no use here. They're, they need to be checked in at the door. How many of you are willing to take that advanced degree and chuck it? <laughs> so something in me, and I suspect in you, because I don't want to get into Sister Karen's um, Sunday school lesson that I wasn't able to sit through all of it. But anyway, she's talking about nature, sinful nature, how the sinful nature has been crucified. But something in us wants to outshine others. And we're all that way, I think. Remember little kids, whenever they, you don't have to teach them to say mine. It's mine. It's just, I want you and you probably want me all to know who we are for Jesus and what we've done for Jesus and what our pedigree for Jesus is and how we've lived for Jesus. I want to show you my merit badges and I want to be admired and I want to be respected. Appreciated, affirmed. But I want you to compare that to what the Apostle Paul writes Worship team, you can come back. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul wanted to know, Paul wanted us to know who Jesus was for him. Paul wanted us um, to know what Jesus had done for him. Paul wanted us to know how Jesus lived in him. And then he goes and he says, because he didn't say this, but Paul's whole aim was to show you the one 
big merit badge that Jesus earned. You know what it was? It's the cross. That's the merit badge that Paul was interested in. He wanted Jesus to be admired and appreciated and affirmed. You ever heard the name Thomas Aquinas? Some of you may have heard of him. Thomas Aquinas. uh, If it wasn't for Thomas Aquinas, there would be a lot of our stuff that we deal with in faith that would be a missing, there'd be a missing portion there. Thomas Aquinas uh, was a 13th century priest. He was a scholar and he was a doctor of the church. He was one of the most prolific and influential theologians in the history. And by the time he was 50, by the time he was 50, he had written over 100 books, treaties, and theological documents. On December the 6th in the year 1273, um, he was attending a feast, the feast day at St. Nicholas in, in um, um, Naples, Italy. This, he, he was doing the Eucharist, if you will, uh, what we call the Lord's Supper. And God met him there that day. He had an encounter with God that shook him to the core so bad that he couldn't write anymore. And he was in, in the pursuit at the time. He was actually in the middle of writing what we would call his magnus opus or his, his magnum opus. It was called the Summa Theologica. And it wasn't complete at this point. And here's, here's what it all amounted to. 38 treaties, 3,000 articles, and 10,000 objections is what he was in the middle of writing. This guy was smart, okay? And then he had that encounter with Jesus. And after his encounters, or after that encounter, he refused to ever write again. And his secretary came to him and said, why are you not writing? And this is what he said to him. His secretary is like, you need to write this. I'm urging you. I'm begging you. And he said to his secretary, he said, Reginald, I can do no more. The end of my labors has come. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written up to this point seems as just straw. One encounter with Jesus. Paul writes it, and he says it a little bit different. He says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ That, just that, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. Are you willing to come strip your merit badges and leave them and say, Lord, I give you this. This is worthless to me anymore. I just want to know you. I strategically had them sing this song just to know you. I love this song. I get lost in this song anyway. But what is it in us that wants to show others our merit badges? And are you willing to discard them this morning for Jesus? That's what I want to ask you. That's the question I want to leave with you. If you were willing to do that, would you come and just find a place here? Let's gather up here. Let's say, Lord, it's all about you. It's all about you. The surpassing worth of knowing you is far greater than anything I can do on my own. Would you come?